This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate, create. Hello, and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello, and welcome to Last Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Last week in Brexit, the podcast all about leaving the EU. On this week's show, we've got EU citizens' rights, we've got some ID cards, the Tory split, and also there's been a new advisory group, which we will dig into. But before all that, I would just like to request you to leave a review on iTunes. The more, the better, and it just helps push us up the charts and allows other people to find the work that we're doing here. As always, I'm joined by Alex Davis. Hello, Hi, Alex. Alex. You're right. And Christian Spence. Hello. Right, gents, let's um, go straight into this. I think the big news of this week is this... Uh, extended document. We had a smaller, a, a smaller version of it a, f- a few months ago, but regarding EU citizens' rights. So, Alex, you've got the document in, in front of you there. What do we know? Uh, yeah. So, more than one year on from the referendum, referendum itself, uh, we finally got something which uh, pretty much everyone has been calling for the entire time. I think 
um, in that we've got the at least the initial kind of draft proposal for what our uh, what, what, what our policy on the rights of EU citizens in the UK will be going forward. Um, so obviously this is part of the negotiations and I don't think at this point we expect this to be how the final um, deal will, will look exactly. But already uh, it, it's, it, it's kind of been torn apart a little bit already. Um, and the suggestion is that um, the promises for uh, this entire time from the, the, the government have been that no rights will be taken away and mm. that essentially people won't notice the change. Um, uh, and an analysis uh, early on from, from legal experts and things like that have already po poked a few holes in it, uh, places where rights potentially are going to be taken away. Um, and I, I, guess, I guess the big, the big ones, which as far as I'm aware, are first of all... Um, this whole new status uh, of settled status. So essentially, um, EU nationals which have been in the country for five years or more will have to apply for this new status of settled status, which will allow them to stay here um, for an indefinite uh, period of time. But the big issue with that is that people who already have permanent residency rights and who have already been through the whole process are going to have to go through a whole new process. And at this point, we don't have much detail on what that process will be. Um, it's looking like it's going to involve some kind of ID card type system um, and you know at, at this point it's very difficult to say because we don't have a lot of the detail but potentially that means another large-scale kind of IT project from the government <laughs> and we all know how that how those tend to go um, and then the second big one which people are pointing out is the fact that this actually uh, reduces the rights of uh, EU nationals coming here in terms of bringing their family across from abroad and that it brings those rights uh, perfectly into line with the rights of British citizens which apparently uh, are some of the uh, least favourable rights in terms of bringing family here um, that exist in the, in the modern world. I'm, I'm not quite sure what those are um, but those, the, the thing about um, the settled status, everyone having to reapply again, the fact that it's going to become so much more difficult to bring family in. And then the final one is also the change that even if you've got this new set, uh, settled status, if you leave the country for two years, uh, you lose the status and then go, we'll have to go through the entire process again based on whatever the immigration policy is uh, post-Brexit, I guess, at that time. Um, and so people are kind of pointing to this and saying well actually you've promised us that nothing's really going to change but when you dig into the details there's potentially some uh, some major rights being taken away, taken away so fundamentally this document is trying to protect the rights of individuals who are already here not individuals wanting to come here from from the eu so it's not eu citizens rights it's eu citizens rights currently in the uk um yeah it is and it, it kind of it's it sets out i guess first of all the changes that, we're, that are going to be in place in terms of between now and whatever this cut-off date will be. Um, so I think Theresa May said that the cut-off date will be no sooner than Article 50 Day but no later than Brexit Day. And so it, set, it sets out essentially uh, what's going to happen to people who are already here and have already been living here, uh, what happens to people who arrive here in the interim between now and this cut-off date. Um, what it doesn't really set out is what exactly what our immigration will, policy will be post-Brexit. Um, so I, I guess that's what it's setting out for now. But I think the point which I kind of make about this is that it's very, very likely to, to change and there's already been pushback. I mean, th there was pushback as soon as this one was announced before the, the detailed document even came out. There was pushback from the other side saying that this isn't what we're, expect we're expecting and it potentially doesn't go far enough. So the odds that this gets changed and the EU fights us on some of this uh, is, is quite high, I, I reckon. 
How important is this? How important are citizens' rights? Because I tend to think of Brexit as more about trade and doing our own trade deals, but this seems to be quite important to the EU. Yeah, and that's my gut reaction. Um, and I said, I've actually not got a great deal of evidence to, uh, hard evidence to back this up, but my gut reaction is I think this is going to be really, really important. Um, and I think f- to get our heads around that, we need to think about how the EU itself and how the, you know, the Commission sees the role, both current and future, of the Union and what it's for. Mm. You know, and what we've seen certainly under the you know, under the more recent treaties, um, particularly um, Nice and then Lisbon, is that real concept that there is a genuine concept of, U- of EU citizenship. You know, that was laid out in the very early days in sort of Maastricht about wanting to get there. That's absolutely there. So all rights enjoyed by any citizen of any member state of the EU are directly applicable in all other member states. Now, the, the document we got from the EU earlier this year, kind of setting out their negotiation stance and their broad guidelines, was pretty punchy in terms of what it wanted. Um, what it really, what they kind of laid out was, obviously, I mean, this is kind of the easy bit in many ways, the rights that citizens gain by virtue of the uh, EU treaties will apply to all UK and EU citizens up until the date of exit, so mm-hmm. that you know everything remains a status quo. So the idea of trying to trip anything in earlier than than you know 29th of March 2019, will there is no way that will go on. But the 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 document from the EU absolutely was clear that what it really wants is all of those rights enjoyed by EU citizens today to continue into the future. Mm. Um, so um, rights not only that you um, Sorry, it's a bit of a complex area. Um, the rights will, should be enjoyed not only by those EU citizens in the UK at the point of the UK leaving the EU, but also all EU, EU citizens who have ever been in the UK before that date, oh. even if they have left uh, and gone back to their states, and then also that the EU rights around family members um, are also protected. So this could be a case of EU citizen who came to the UK, worked here for five or six years, ten years ago, left, and is now in a different member state, and potentially maybe their children are in another member state, that that person and their family maintain their rights to movement into and out of the UK with all of the associated uh, work permit, access to social security, health care, pensions, etc., now, that's a big ask. Um, it is. Uh, and it's, it's hard to imagine that we'll end up at that end of the debate. But I think the fact that their kind of starter for 10 was so unbelievably bold, um, for me, suggests actually for the EU, this is really, really important. Um, you know, and I think on the two, the two statements, you know, uh, Theresa May gave her, her quick statement over dinner um, early last week, broadly kind of highlighting what was going to be in the paper. They said that was one, the EU, so that was a great first step, but nowhere near sufficient. Essentially, the paper that was laid before Parliament earlier this week, which goes a little bit further and sets out in more detail, got exactly the same response. Now, just refresh my memory. Was this the, was this the proposal put to Parliament, or was tried to be put to Parliament, that they wanted to secure EU citizens' rights before the negotiations began? Am I, am I right in thinking that? It, it, yep, yeah, it's the bit that both, both the EU and the... Uh, and the UK said, we want to get on with this and do it early. The, the, the UK said, look, we're happy to just crack on and do this before we start negotiations. At this point, we haven't actually triggered Article 50. 
the EU said we're negotiating nothing until until you've instigated the process. So you know we are not at liberty to uh, to talk to you until until Article Fifty is notified. So I mean we've been speaking on this now for what best part of nine minutes, and it's clearly an enormous subject. I can't help but think that when the MPs on both sides were calling for this just to be done before the negotiations in you know a week or two. They didn't really have an idea of the complexity involved or the size of it. No, that's right. And I think we talked about this in one of the earlier podcasts where I think I highlighted the problem is everyone started banding around from the very early days of the of the Brexit uh, being decided on. We need to protect citizens' rights. And the problem is, right, that word rights in that sentence is doing an awful lot of work. Um, because people say, oh, you have the right, the right to what? Do you have the right to work mm-hmm. under a work permit? Is that work permit transferable? So is it, is it applicable only for that employer and for that job, which is the, the common way uh, that work permits from non-EU states uh, are handled? Does it include right to remain? So if you cease that job or you cease working, are you allowed to stay in the UK? Um, does it give you access to the education system? Does it give you access to NHS treatment? Does it give you access to out-of-work benefits, maternity benefits, child tax credits? Does it give you access to pensions? Does it give you those rights for your spouse, for your children, for any other dependents? Does it give you the right to leave the country and come back without reapplication? This is the problem. When you start to talk about rights, is what do you mean? And of course, at the far end of that is citizenship. Yeah. You know? um, so when you say, yes, we're going to protect rights, unless you can go to the nth degree and say which ones, it's a meaningless statement. So it'd be fairly easy, I imagine, to say, right, EU citizen, citizens have exactly the same rights as UK citizens. But actually, at the moment, EU citizens have better rights in the UK than existing citizens, if that makes sense. So can you just outline the difference, or some of the differences, that existing citizens have as opposed to EU citizens? Okay, so the, re- the really big one, and I guess if, if anyone sort of you know, takes a bit of a look at this in the press, the one that will always come through is about rights of spouses and dependents. Um, so the challenge here is, as you said, EU citizens in the UK have greater rights by virtue of the EU treaties to bring, it, to bring over their, uh, their spouses or their children into the UK than uh, pure UK citizens and, any, and you know, uh, immigrants from any other country outside the EU. So, um, so for example, let's take an example. A uh, British citizen um, marries an American citizen, wants to bring um, the American citizen to the UK to live with them. That, that uh, the wife, the husband, will be subject to minimum earnings requirements to do so. So this was changed um, actually under um, a fairly vicious Home Secretary, um, who's currently Prime Minister, <laughs> um, as part of the tightening down on, on migration rules. Um, so essentially that means that if you marry somebody, they do not have automatic right of access um, to the UK. You've got to show uh, that they're earning enough, uh, enough money. Um, now, lots of other countries around the world have rules similar to this. Um, but usually it's about the clause that can you support yourself. Can I ask a question here? Yeah. How come we were allowed to put that restriction in place as part of the EU? Uh, because it doesn't apply to EU citizens, essentially. So EU citizens have those uh, have those rights. So if it was a British citizen marrying a French person, then EU rights go. Uh, but so you're not obliged. No member states obliged to apply those rights to non-EU course, citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of this is interesting because it it kind of flows back to to some of the other things we've talked about. A lot of this stuff is in UK government hands to to change. It's just the way we've decided to do it. 
And often a lot of this also reflects, you know, the concerns over things like migrate, um, uh, migrant benefits and my, is actually our system works differently to pretty much every other system in the developed world. So in most other countries, even as a citizen of that country, your rights to draw down on social security and health, access to health is predicated on some form of engagement with the system. Uh, so some form of already contributing. So essentially a contributory mm. social social benefit system. Wind the clock back, we used to have that in the UK. You know, the amount of state pension you got uh, still did... Well, no, that's now changed completely. But historically, the amount of state pension you got would have been related to the, the amount of NI stamps you've collected yep. um, over your working career. But access to healthcare or access to unemployment benefits was never really uh, done like that. You know, access to unemployment benefits now is done on household income. Um, rather than anything else. Every other member state of the EU, pretty much, pretty much every other developed economy has this kind of contributory system um, where your unemployment benefits are time limited uh, and if you've not paid in enough then you don't get them in the first place. Uh, and so we changed all of our other systems to try and get around the fact that our benefit system on the whole, our health system, is all non-contributory. It's there, you just draw it down. Um, so you know, fighting back against a lot of the a lot of the Brexit narrative, particularly about kind of people come here to draw down on the benefit system, despite the fact all the evidence shows that that's not the case, made the government look to try and clamp down in other ways. So sorry, that was a very long answer um, to the question, but this one around around spouses and dependents um, is, I think, going to be one of the big ones for the EU. Um, so there is this challenge where so when, is that as, as you know, Alex said earlier in your question. Essentially, the UK's own way of doing this is worse than the, the EU minimum. So, who do the EU want to oversee the, uh, the maintenance of EU citizens' rights? Have they got someone in mind for that? Are they happy just for the UK courts to make sure that all, all this stuff is upheld? Uh, no, their ideal position, I think, is that they want the ECJ to do that. Brilliant. Theresa May's position is that that's not going to happen. And... Um, but David Davis says that there will be some oversight and it has to be a supranational court. And I saw a rumour today that they're already considering setting up some kind of new organisation which will oversee the rights of our citizens. Yeah, and in many ways they'll have to be, because whatever, yeah. the, tr whatever the treaty that comes out, because people always kind of forget about this bit, is, is that, you know, our membership of the EU is a treaty. It's a standard international treaty serviced in the normal ways that international treaties are served amendments to that and whatever goes in in its place will also be an international treaty mm -hmm. it will just be bilateral between the UK and the EU a body will have to police yep. the the uh, you know the adherence to those 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 statements most of these things when you do them internationally there is a supranational body that does it it could go through the Hague which is where most big multilateral uh, treaty agreements go through in this case because it's just going to be UK EU the likelihood as Alex said I think and uh, Davis has hinted at uh, is we'll end up with a new UK-EU court uh, to, to, to look over the treaties. Um, this, uh, this, this kind of strikes me a, a bit weirdly, and I guess in hindsight it's something that sh which everyone should have realised would have happened, but it, it, it feels to me like, well, it, it is happening, that the EU is es essentially exerting its influence over our policies even post-Brexit, because obviously we've got to come to some kind of deal. But it strikes me as a bit odd that they are kind of pushing back on what our proposed arrangements would be, even after the day that we've left. And obviously we all know that immigration was, was a part of the referendum. Um, and, you know, the government policy is that they want to restrict freedom of movement and control immigration some more, in some way. And the, uh, the EU is aware of this angle as well. 
And if essentially the EU are saying that our immigration, uh, migration policy post Brexit has to be completely in line with what the EU's is currently, then what I'm wondering is, have, are we going to have any wiggle room at all? At what point might we be able to, you know, take this increased control? I think the challenge is it probably it all comes down to the deals. I think you know I've spoken to a few friends like this who say, look, it's you know the migration is not an issue. You can do whatever you like, and we off we go and sign a trade deal. Um, I think the big challenge for the UK here, of course, is the bit. You know, no one is let's say let's just take a step back. There will be some form of free trade agreement between the UK and the EU. It's it's almost impossible to to imagine a scenario where that doesn't take place. Could it be really comprehensive in terms of covering all manufactured goods, um, possibly even agriculture and fisheries? Perfectly possible. Is it going to be in a big way dealing with the services sector? Probably not. And that's where I think the challenge is, is going to come. Free trade agreements in goods are relatively straightforward. Lots of countries do them. The services bit, of course, the single market is hugely important. The UK is an overwhelmingly dominated service sector economy. It's where we are the most competitive. So, I mean, the, you know, there's some interesting, I think, stress room for the EU here. Um, as we will start to look at what, our, what the services side of that agreement looks like, it knows we are more competitive than the EU is on services. So, actually, the EU has, the, has a bit more pulling power here and will probably be a bit more defensive. Now, the challenge, the flip side is, as we've seen over the past kind of 20 years, more trade agreements come out globally, whether bilaterally or multilaterally, that include aspects of services. Um, the, aspect, the, the thing that's important in terms of crossing border for services is people. So historically, free trade, free, um, free trade agreements around goods are all about, yes, getting the tariffs down, but increasingly about getting the non-tariff barriers down. How do you enable those goods to get across the border really easily without being held up? Mm -hmm. The flip side to do that with services is actually what you need is people to be able to move across borders really easily. And that's yeah. kind of where the single market actually works. You know, there's all sorts of downsides and we don't need to go into those, but broadly it works because all of that can happen. Which means increasingly the newer free trade agreements we've seen globally uh, and we saw this from the evidence when Theresa May went to talk to India last year about opening up discussions yeah. with them, was, that's cool, let's have a chat, and let's also make sure we're talking about how many visas we're issuing. Yeah. So visas and migration policy is inherently a great, becoming a greater and greater part of free trade agreements as we go forward. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a case of is the EU kind of being really strong over this and can it screw, you know, can it screw the UK government for everything it wants? The point is we want a deal. Yeah. And if we want a deal that's got a good chunk of services in, which is where we'll do really well, then migration is going to be on the table. Mm. Yeah, because it actually, yeah, because it actually plays in our favour also. It just doesn't play in our favour politically. No, I and I think that's the challenge. But but also, I think there's probably less of a challenge if we can get beyond you know the noisy rhetoric of the the opposing side of the politics and this and the press. Because even you know I will say this you know even in the UKIP manifesto, the line is controlling migration. Yes, it's not necessarily about reducing. Even Farage at his you know shouty smiles that I can env he could envisage a situation mm -hmm. where there was a controlled migration policy which which essentially had net inflows similar to today. Um, it was, you know, for them, it was, you know, very much. It's the free movement aspect. It's yeah. the you can just come in as, as it were, you know, when, when and whenever you like, without any checks. Of course, the point is the treaties do allow us to boot people out after three months if they're not in work. But because we don't keep a border control system which allows you to keep track of it, we've never enforced it. But every other member state does. So let's just move this on slightly. 
Do you think this debate, this part of the negotiation, is going to be a bellwether for does Brexit mean Brexit or does Brexit mean EU just by a different name? Alex? Um, yeah, it, that, it, it, it's, it's going to come down to that. And I, I think the, the kind of suspicions from the hard levers that this whole thing is, is going to be, I guess, in their, in their eyes, kind of made a mess of and we're not really going to do Brexit properly is probably an all-time high right now. Um, yeah. Because of the whole thing, you know, that we capitulated on the first day and there's already the pushback against the citizens' rights things. I mean, we're only... We're not that far into negotiations and... No, there's been one meeting. That's yeah. it. We've done one meeting so far. Yeah, and it, it already feels like, you know, we're going to have to bend significantly more than we want to. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that, that debate's going to rage on for, for years and years and years. I would imagine whether... whether is, is Brexit Brexit or are we just going to be in the EU in all but name kind of thing? Um, yeah, but I, I think I think there's some there's some interesting angles to it. But this whole citizens' rights things, I I, I find it very interesting because sorry, I've, I've completely lost my train. It's okay because <laughs> I mean it is interesting because Task Force Fifty is going to sit there with its parameters, and if the UK tries to negotiate outside of these parameters, it's just going to get nowhere. Until it goes back, right? Yeah, and I think this is the problem. It's you know, it's this is one of the aspects that you know I've kind of maintained throughout, and the kind of the particularly the harder Brexiteers have always pushed back against. Saying, look, you know, we you know the EU, we've always said it, the EU has the upper hand in this. Yeah. Um, by sheer virtue of size, and by sheer virtue of we are the ones walking. Yeah. Um, that's just kind of natural. Um, but there's always been this kind of argument that, oh, no, it's not, it's not you know, but the yeah. EU, we can negotiate. Of course we can negotiate. We'll, we, know, we both start off, the two sides will start off at opposite ends of the line and they will find the middle ground. That's the point that I was, I was just going to make before I forgot what I was going to say. Was, was how much do you think that the government put this, this bill on citizens' rights forward knowing that there would be a pushback? I mean, do, do, you, do you really think that they thought that they just put this on the table and it would be accepted? Or are they, are they expecting that there's going to be compromise and all this stuff? Well, Is that uh, the hand that they're playing? I'm not, I'm not well, sure. I thought this was the one that they're going to put through really, really quickly, really early, in order to show some goodwill. That's what I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing for me is, no, I don't think they, I hope government did not think this will be accepted. Yeah. As it is. Because if they genuinely do think that, <laughs> then, then yeah. we're in trouble. Yes. We're in a lot yeah. of trouble. Um, I think this is, you know, here's, hopefully this is kind of your, here's your start of a ten. Mm. But I think the fact that it's so vague on the detail, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there, to be fair. Um, but actually, when you get into things like dependence, children, student migration, what yeah. happens over the long term, the fact none of that is even talked about is, for me, a little bit worrying. Because actually, and the, the worst thing as well is, we published the document, and then you've got people like Boris Johnson, going in the press saying, look, we've put our thing on the table, it'll be interesting to see what the EU's counter is. And it's like, we've already seen the EU's counter. We had we that know exactly back in what it May is. Yeah. when the, the Parliament and the Council put their things down. So actually, this is the counter-offer. What you've just put on the table is the counter-offer. Just And the fact they were so clear, you know, the EU document is unbelievably detailed in what it wants. The fact you've not even responded to the questions they set, mm. just again in all of this leaves me feeling a bit nervous. Just going off on a tangent, if there was a point where the UK could persuade the EU to give ground, would that be quite public? Would you see Task Force 50 have to report back to the Council or the European Parliament in order to get extra, extra permissions? And would that be publicly known? 
well, I think everything from the EU side is publicly known. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, other commentators have, have, have said this kind of thing. The really, really sad and disappointing thing in all this is, uh, you know, someone who's on the, you know, is a UK citizen here and wants to see Britain do well out of this is the single best port of information for everything yeah, the, that's going on in the negotiations. The website's really good, actually. Isn't it? Is the European Commission, um, who are publishing everything and being and are being really open. Um, well, I would just counter that and say. You know, negotiating with Task Force Fifty is like negotiating with Apple Terms and Conditions. You know, you don't have much. You, know, you don't have much much leeway. And if both sides did that, I mean, there wouldn't be anything to discuss, really. No, there wouldn't. And but and I think that's a huge challenge. And it's it'll be interesting to see how things go. Um, you know, I think as Alex said earlier, I think the outcome of this bit, the citizens' rights, will give a pretty good indication of where things are going to go over the longer term. But all of this highlights the. The sheer power of the EU. What does it in all of belligerence this? and intransigence? I don't know. Very probably it does, but the point is, I don't think the two things are necessarily separable mm. because the EU has delegated its rights down to down to Barnier um, and and Task Force Fifty. The Parliament has set out what it wants to see out of this. After that, the Council set out a more detailed document setting out not only that this is wants it to see. But that explicitly states this is what Barnier can work within. Yeah. Okay. So the council has set out what it wants, and is sending the negotiator in, saying you have our permission to do anything you like within this. Yes. So. So as soon as we start to move away significantly from that, they are going to have to go back and get council permission. I, I wonder how much of this could actually hinge on how clever Barnier is if he wanted to negotiate a deal, make, putting it in the right language to be acceptable back to the council. Yeah, I think there's that. And I think there's, all, there's also, I think from the EU side, more room, more room for, for manoeuvre than perhaps the official documents suggest. Mm. If you look at that thing of the history of the EU, the way, it's, the way it's just helped things along over the years, now depending on what side you are and your political bias, you'll have different opinions on what helping along means. But issues around, you know, getting the Lisbon Treaty through, you know, Denmark and uh, and uh, and um, and Ireland when they turned it down, all sorts of other things. Actually, the EU is a pretty good fudger for all yes. of its massive, massive reliance on colossal bureaucracy uh, and detailed documents and treaties. It has, on innumerable occasions over its life, fudged issues to help them through. Um, you know, the EU wants a decent deal out of all this. Um, but it does have the upper hand, and it's you know it's one thing we've talked about for a while, and it'd just be nice for the UK government, from my point of view at least, to kind of stop the stick waving. And whilst I understand it probably doesn't want to publicly acknowledge the EU as an upper hand, I'd like to see something in the documents and the tone which suggests they've at least privately recognised that. Hmm. Well, you did mention political leanings. Let's talk about Tory leanings, or more particularly, Tory splits. Last week has been full of um, uh, Bor- uh, Boris, Hammond, uh, Davis, all not really having a coherent view on Brexit. So what do we know about the Tory position? Has it changed? And will this change anything in the negotiations? Um, I, th- I think we were, we were talking about this before the podcast. That it, it isn't really even just the Tories. It, it kind of seems like... Um, particularly Conservatives and Labour are kind of still split on on Brexit and are even wavering from their manifestos in many ways. Mm. Um, but the the big story, which I think was the, the top story in the Times today, I think about the, the the Tory split between Hammond, Davis, and Boris. I mean, 
Hammond's been around doing a few speeches this week and he's been kind of taking digs at Boris with you know making little jokes and things like that. And then apparently Hammond and Davis are also arguing because uh, Philip Hammond suggested that the transition deal would be like something like four or five years, whereas David Davis is saying um, it will be only two. Um, I think Philip Hammond is taking a much, uh, he's, he's using the line transitional arrangements, whereas David Davis is sticking to the whole, um, what's, what's, he, what's he calling it? Uh, begins begins with an I implementation phase and it's like it's like they're, they're arguing over these little terms but the, the point which I made about this was that if you go back six months ago I think they would have been arguing about whether there should be a transition period mm. whereas now they're not arguing about whether there should be one they're just arguing about how long it should be what interests me about this are the personalities putting forward their viewpoints and I wonder if they're putting forward these viewpoints almost as an advertisement to a Tory membership, yes. saying, hang on a minute, there could be a change of leader, and this, and this is how I would han- handle Brexit. I'm almost certain that is the case, actually. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd go along with that. I certainly think there's some of that uh, in there. Um, yeah, David, David Davis is obviously trying to appeal much more to the Brexiteers. Mm. Um, Hammonds is trying to appeal much more to the pragmatists. Um, but they're kind of clo- they're, they're sort of closing in on, on a position. And yeah. I, I think... Well, I th- I, I wonder think, what um, I wonder what Andrea Letson thinks. <laughs> I, I think I think I said it before that they they are arguing with themselves, but they're they're arguing in a much kind of smaller scope than they perhaps were six months ago. Um, and yeah, it, it's happening in the Labour Party as well. We're, we're seeing we're still seeing Keir Starmer going back to the whole. He thinks we can stay in the single market, and then that's definitely the best route, which completely is not what their manifesto says. Mm. Um, and obviously, I, I won't talk too much about Corbyn wavering on things that have been said in the uh, the manifesto, but that's happening too. Um, and so it seems like every party really is having its own uh, kind of internal issues. Yeah. Um, do you guys have any preference to? Uh, well, this is more of a, a general chamber question. But do you have any preference to which of the which of the routes is best, softer, harder? Um, I, I, well, I think we try and stay neutral and, and kind of don't have a position. I think we, we well, did. Well, we, we did, did until the, no, we, the posi- we we've got the position, position statements, yeah, yeah, which which absolutely lay out what the membership's looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I mean, and even that is kind of treading a line because, of course, actually our membership is pretty heavily divided. There's no yeah. there's no overwhelming vote uh, one way or the other. But they are pretty clear on actually the 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 benefits of the single market need to be protected before you come up with something else. Mm-hmm. So do, make sure you don't fall out mm-hmm. of things before you've got something in place. Um, grandfathering of existing trade agreements, both with the EU and with the with third countries, should take preference over being able to sign other new ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't fall out of all of that aspect until you've got something in place. So it's, I mean, basically the position is don't rush this and foul it up. It's yeah. probably yeah. a way to summarise a think, pretty um, chunky document. Yeah, I think uh, Adam Adam Marshall from British Chambers of Commerce was on, TV, on Bloomberg talking about this, and the way he put it, I thought was quite nice, is that um, if businesses are going to have to make adjustments. Um, to some new changes or some new reg- regulations or new legislation, let's just have it happen once. You know, we don't want we don't want to have these steps where suddenly everything changes and then six months later yeah. something else changes. We need there to be this is what's coming up. It's going to happen on this day. You've got all this time to prepare, and there's one change and one adjustment. Like if if we can get it down to that to that process, and I guess that's what we're looking for. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned it might be last week actually. We mentioned it might be useful if Brexit was a little bit more cross-party. Now, it doesn't look like it's going to be explicitly cross-party, but we have had Keir Starmer being sworn on to the Privy Council. Does this mean anything? 
I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm not sure it does. When, when, I, when I saw this announcement, there were people on Twitter saying that it, it means essentially that uh, Keir Starmer will now be being briefed by David Davis on how the negotiations are going. But I don't see how it means that Keir Starmer will have any influence over how the negotiations go. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But it would mean is the, is the Privy Council more just a ceremonial thing? I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. But I mean, let's just presume. Well, yeah. Let's not presume anything. But I'm going to presume anyway. Yeah. Let's presume that it is something fairly important. It would give Keir Starmer a lot of um, a lot of leverage when holding David Davis to account. So mm-hmm. I guess in in a sense, it's almost cross party by the back door. Yeah, and I, th- I think it, it will be Starmer trying to hold Davis to account because I think Starmer's position is, is broadly in line with perhaps Hammond's position, mm. um, which, which is interesting in, in and of itself. Um, I know there's been murmurings that Hammond might be the person to take over May uh, come the Tory party conference. And if that happens, there's potentially going to be a- agreement between the Prime Minister and the lead negotiator on the other side, which will be an interesting situation. Yeah, Do, I don't suppose you know anything about the Privy Council or its role or its importance. In in detail, no. I'm just looking at I'm looking at sort of some things here. Um, I think there's, I think there's probably see fairly seen fairly major um, issues about whilst it's you know it's a it's a you know, extremely long lived body. It goes back over over centuries. Um, the oath hasn't changed since the 16th century. All that kind of stuff. Actually, as to just how meaningful it is. So yes, it is. It does things like signing off secondary legislation. Um, that's its role. But actually, the quora for 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 a meeting of the Privy Council is actually only three. Um, people who are appointed to the Privy Council are appointed for life, certainly. So there will be a very large number oh, right. of that. members of it. Yeah. So anyone who has been or uh, or is um, a cabinet secretary or major shadow secretary is, is in there. So, so I, yeah, I think I, I guess I'm, the answer to my original question is no. It's it probably matter. not in any mean, in any <laughs> no. meaningful and tangible sense for what we're talking about. No. Actually, it almost certainly isn't. So let's leave that right there. Um, now, Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce is always asking its members about various bits and pieces. You guys have, have conducted a poll. Would you, like to me, would you like to tell me something about it? Uh, yeah, so this was a poll conducted by British Chambers of Commerce um, straight after the general election. Uh, just a, li- a little poll, um, some questions basically on the end of a, uh, a survey which we, we do regularly about Brexit and people's thoughts on it in the context of the election result particularly and uh, it was it was fairly interesting because I think it kind of shows perhaps a, a kind of broad shift um, in, in perhaps in the way that members are feeling about this and, it, and again, again it could be just the people that decided to answer these questions but it, it looks to me basically like an outright rejection of the way that the government is kind of handling this um, I mean the first question first of all uh, was do you feel that uh, the needs of businesses are being prioritised uh, currently in, in the in the Brexit negotiations, and fifty nine percent went with disagree. Mm-hmm. So there's broad agreement really that people don't think that the government is taking the business the needs of business into account enough at this stage. Um, and then there are a few questions really just about the general strategy where we should go. Um, should we reconsider our negotiating position? Um, so uh, I think. Following the general election, the result was that 58% of respondents said that the negotiating position should be reconsidered, so that we should perhaps step away from the, the kind of 12 headline negotiating objectives which were set out uh, months and months ago, perhaps have, have a, a cross-party chat over how to take things forward. And then the other interesting one was that, again, there was a kind of uh, a more strong rejection of leaving the single market and the customs union than we've seen before 
in these types of surveys. So 55% um, answered that they'd like us to stay in both the single market and the customs union. Um, there was 17% saying we should stay in the customs union but not in the single market, which I think is uh, an interesting position, perhaps a podcast all of its own. Um, <laughs> and then uh, a further 18% think we should stay in the single market but leave the customs union. And if you add all that up together, it's you know, you're looking at more than three quarters of the respondents think that we should stay in the single market or the customs union or both. So it seems to me like a, an outright rejection of hard Brexit from uh, from the, the membership. Um, and I guess going back to the first question, which is which is quite interesting about how they feel that business needs aren't being prioritised. Uh, we've had the news this week that there's been a, uh, a business advisory group set up by the government. Yes. Um, so... This group's been set up um, and it's going to be essentially the heads of various business uh, representative organisations like the British Chambers of Commerce and the Federation of Small Business and the Institute of Directors and the Engineering and whatever it is. Employers Federation Employers EF Foundation. and the CBI. Yeah. And the CBI, yeah. So the leaders of all those are going to be meeting up uh, weekly, I believe, with Greg Clark um, and basically, yeah, trying to relay what businesses are saying about all this. Um, and I believe that David Davis is going to be in those meetings fortnightly too, mm. which is interesting it because, is, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I said before that I, I, I'm not sure if it's my confirmation bias coming through, but I'm starting to see more and more moves towards this being much softer than people might have anticipated uh, a few months ago. And that certainly seems to be the view of businesses. I mean, look at any of the surveys that any of these organizations have done and businesses essentially are asking for a soft Brexit. So I'm going to be very interested to see how much influence this group actually exerts over how the negotiations are taken forward. Do you think this might be one of the unforeseen um, one of the unforeseen advantages of having a weaker government, which is the Brexit process is softening, but also becoming more, more consensual, I guess? Yeah, I think so. And I, and I also wonder that we, you know, we've, we've not tested this in the survey work and it might come out over the coming months. Um, but how much of kind of that that this this shift we've seen in the latest polling is down to colossal uncertainty being shown from government's side? Mm. Um, so actually, you know, you know, despite lots of our members possibly even disagreeing with aspects of that twelve-point plan that, that that the prime minister gave back in January, actually welcomed it broadly, saying at least we know where we're going. I don't like it, but I understand we are where we are. Um, crack on, deliver this, and we'll go with it. And I do wonder how much of the shift is about the, actually, you've not got a plan, have you? <laughs> you, know, yeah. you sold us, you, you were going to do this, we'll get on. All of that's kind of fizzled away. And the, you know, the general response, A, from the business community, B, I think we've seen broadly from the, from the population in terms of the general election result, is, hang on a minute, this is not quite what we were being sold. Um, just out of interest, you guys deal with businesses on a daily basis. How well equipped are big businesses to be talking about things like international treaties? <coughs> well, in terms of actual treaties themselves, very few will, will, will have any idea. I mean, yeah. In the sense that, you know, that I, you know, I doubt there are many more than a few hundred people in the world who seriously understand mm. all of that sort of stuff. But I think what they are hugely equipped to talk about, and it's one of the ways we tend to, we tend to survey our members, and we did not long after the referendum, is in terms of talking about the aspects of what those things deliver that they enjoy and see mm. as useful. So yeah, this is an unusual survey recently because you know, we asked specifically about single market and customs union. Historically, what we have asked them to talk about is what are the things yeah. that our membership of the EU gives them that's beneficial so they can talk about actually we like the we like 
like the idea that there are absolutely no border holdups. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like the idea that actual documentation procedures to get goods into the EU are relatively straightforward. We like the idea that actually we're to surf on the back of the, the either the free trade agreements or other bilateral treaties with other countries is good. Um, lack of bureaucracy in terms of bringing EU nationals to work here. So by by asking those sorts of questions, you realise actually business does know a lot and can talk through sheer, sheer practical experience. Do they know the definition of what the customs union actually is? Mm-hmm. Actually, the interesting bit is, is we tend to increasingly find no, yeah. we don't. And they talk about, a lot of the time, the things they talk about, um, ease of regulation, no stopping at borders, all that kind of stuff. They say it's really important we keep the customs union for that. And we say, well, that's great, but those rights don't come to you through the customs union. They come to you through other ways. Um, so it is complex. So yeah, answer the question, do businesses know about that stuff at the big level? No, in terms of how they benefit and where they're worried about seeing disbenefits coming, absolutely they're aware. Excellent. Right, gents, uh, do you want to add anything else before we uh, finish this off? I think I'm just going to, I'd like to just finish off actually by taking yeah. us back to the citizens' rights bit. Yes, please. Because uh, actually, I'm, I've, uh, while we've all been talking, I've just been rereading the uh, the European Council's. Did um, notice you busily, busily tapping away there. Absolutely, re- revisiting the European Council statement. So this is the negotiating um, document. This is the recommendation for a council decision authorising the opening of negotiations for an agreement with the UK. So this is the document essentially which Barnier has, has to work to. Everything in here is what the councillor said he can go and do. And there's a chunky section on citizens' rights, but I'm just going to touch on one bit of it. We says the agreement should safeguard, so the agreement, that which actually comes out and is signed, the agreement should safeguard the states and status and rights derived from union law at the withdrawal date. Okay, fine, that's all nice and clear. Including those of the enjoyment of which will intervene at a later date. So, for example, old age pensions, yep. Yep, because that might be 40, 50 years away from people. For EU 27 citizens residing in or having resided and working in or having worked in the UK uh, and then the flip side for the other way around uh, and that it's all reciprocal. And I think that's the, that's the really important bit. So it's not only that they're here now, but they've ever been here. Mm-hmm. and vice versa, or ever worked here. And the definition of the persons to be covered, economically active, workers, self-employed, inactive persons, so you didn't have to be working here, you could just be family member of someone uh, who was. Uh, so it's an unbel- their offer, you know, the, the, this is what Barnier has to negotiate within, so and it's incredibly bold. Reciprocal. So, yeah, you said it had to be reciprocal. So whatever the UK offers EU citizens of the EU must offer UK. So it's, you know, it, it's an absolute equal swap in that sense. Well, I was, I was going to close off the podcast, but we'll just, just go a little bit more into this. Um, from a negotiation point of view, if it is reciprocal for um, UK citizens to go over to the EU, um, what is the real downside here? From a political point of view, is it that the EU don't control their borders well enough? We don't know who really who all the citizens are, or is it something else? Is it that we just don't want don't want these rights for our, for our for our citizens, or we don't need them? What's the issue here? I th- my gut reaction is it's just political, mm. um, and I think you know it's uh, I've not talked about this in detail with many other people, but actually it's something I'm going to do, try and do over the next few weeks with my both Remain and Brexit friends. Um, he's actually unpick all of this, you know, because I've my gut reaction is if you say to your average Brexiter, look, the, what the EU wants is basically every EU citizen who's ever been here, mm. who not who aren't, those who are, 
And of course, the cutoff date will be in the future now. So anyone who comes between now and us leaving gets lifetime rights that they enjoy now uh, for themselves and for their family for the duration until those people die. Mm. The, I suspect a lot will push back and say that's absolutely outrageous and impossible. But I suspect if you kind of drill down and chat in this kind of way that you're yeah. just there, well, that actually, well, this is just about actually, this means that actually you get the rights to go over the UK, your family get the rights in the longer term. I suspect it's something you well, could probably diffuse. I think, I think I've said before that um, I, I think there's more wiggle room in terms of freedom of movement within the single market than people realise. Um, and it strikes me as if we were to just come out and say, you know what, we're, lit- we're literally going to copy and paste the, the current rights that EU citizens have here. Mm. We're not going to change anything. We're just going to agree to just continue as things are. But we'd like them to have ID cards. That potentially gets around the problem of, you know, appeasing the EU, but allowing us to control who, or at least see who we've got coming in and out mm-hmm. a lot more. And I believe that there's other countries around the EU who have uh, identification systems that we I mean, don't. Pretty much all of them, yeah. yeah, yeah. Have, you know, again, so, we're, we're, we're odd in that sense. So in, uh, in, in a way, we could agree to just continue things as, as they are, but we could align ourselves more directly with some other EU countries, and you basically solve the let's control immigration more problem along with it so well I mean if I was David Davis now I'd probably be coming back to the UK public and say saying something along the lines of you'll never guess what rights I've secured for you within the EU exactly yeah now, can you flip it how do you paint this argument <laughs> yeah. you know it's something we often talk about here you know, gr- particularly in policy it's, it's a great narrative, victory narrative matters mm. um, where you know it's absolutely been focused from from Davis and you know the kind of the bro Brexit side it's all been about this fight with the EU and how do we clamp things down rather than Actually, how do we flip it and, and say that you know something positive can come out of this? Mm. Um, uh, I think I think the hard bit politically will probably be the the bit between now and 2019 and actual leaving mm. because I suspect the Brexit side will ha- has a good potential I think to paint the picture of look how do you stop this won't happen how do you stop three million EU migrants landing at Dover mm. five minutes before the treaties cease? Yeah, um, uh, and I think that is I think that is probably actually quite a hard one. Um, but actually, I guess you could make the same case of what do you do if all the British pensioners land on the Costa del Sol? Yeah, I mean, surely the smart thing for for UK workers would be to go another stint now in the EU. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, is, yeah. If you want to secure those rights, if you like the idea of EU citizenship for for yourself and your family, then uh, get yourself a three month uh, work work placement out there. There was talk, wasn't there, being able to buy EU citizenship in the future? Yeah, this was this was raised by the EU itself. Yeah, as, as the idea of can we create a, a flexible EU citizenship, which which the UK people who want it can uh, can buy into. But I suspect, you know, careful negotiation around this should be able to kind of solve that anyway. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's leave it there. Um, if you want to get in contact with us or join, join the debate, please follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. Alex? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And Christian? I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. Fantastic. And of course, please leave us those iTunes reviews. They are very important. Until next week, goodbye.